If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, my name's Dave, I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, and this is our September podcast. I'm joined today by Deputy Editor Sue. Hello. And by our section editor, Rob. Hello. Coming up this issue... I've got to admit that occasionally dormice were consumed. That was Professor Mary Beard, who will be revealing the dormice-eating habits of ancient Pompeians later on. Elizabeth had a very strong sense of having a hotline to God, and she knew perfectly well what he wanted her to do. And that was Professor David Lodes, who's taking us back to a hotbed of Reformation fervour in this month's time machine. You could say his main achievement was the execution of the king. Um, Achievement, of course, there is very ambiguous. And finally, we'll be hearing from Professor John Morrill, who is untangling the reputation of one Oliver Cromwell. All these subjects are explored in the current issue of BBC History magazine, and we've got a great subscription offer for you this month. Every new subscriber will get a free copy of an exciting new book on Cromwell called God's Executioner by Michael Crew, who's written the cover feature for the magazine. His book explores Cromwell's conquest of Ireland. To claim your free book and to subscribe to the magazine for the reduced price of £8.10 every three issues by direct debit, just call 0844-844-0250 and quote POD0908 to take up this offer. Or go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine and again quote pod 0908. 
We'll repeat that subscription number at the end. Uh, and now onto the Dormice. Uh, Pompeii, famous for Romans frozen in time after the eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79, is the subject of Professor Mary Beard's latest book, and she has written an A to Z of Pompeii for the magazine. So let's hear from her now. Mary, you've got your book on Pompeii coming out. Could you very quickly run over the history of the place for anyone who's not familiar with it? Yeah, well, in some ways, Pompeii is the most famous Roman town that there that there is. But that conceals a rather strange fact, honestly, which is that Pompeii was actually only a Roman town for about 150, 160 years of its existence. It actually started out back in the 6th century BC as a little non-Roman town in South Italy with bits of Greek influence, bits of Etruscan influence, bits of so-called Oscan influence from the people who lived around there. And it had nothing very much to do with Rome to start with. What happened to Pompeii, like to all towns in Rome and Italy, gradually, is the vast might of Rome eventually comes and gobbles it up. Um, and by 80 BC, uh, it has become, uh, after a rather bloody war, in fact, it's become a, an absolutely standard Roman town. It has a colony of Roman veteran soldiers put in it. And that's the period of Pompeii that we know best. Um, but it's got a long history. Um, you know, it, it finishes in 79, but it goes back much longer than anybody ever realises. And it finishes in 79, of course, because of the eruption of, of Vesuvius. <laughs> it finishes in 79, a very dramatic way with the eruption of Vesuvius. But uh, the history goes back to, uh, well back into the 6th century BC, hundreds of years. And we know much less about the early history of Pompeii than we do about the last Roman town, partly because uh, archaeologists, for obvious reasons, have been... Um, reluctant to destroy the Roman remains to find out what happened first. But uh, we have got more information than we used to have about what the beginning of Pompeii was like. Now, you, you mentioned uh, about the, the new research and the new findings that have come out of Pompeii. Can you highlight uh, one or two things which, which, are, which are really exciting that have come out of, of Pompeii recently? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know this is really exciting, but one of the things that most intrigued me was the study of what we might call the one-way street system. That um, I, when you go to Pompeii, and anybody visits Pompeii, the one thing that everybody remembers is the ruts in the street. You know, that you, it's terribly evocative in some way. You see these cart ruts, and you think, God, you know, this is really where an ancient cart once went. And you see everybody uh, being fascinated by these. It's only recently that some rather clever archaeologists, starting with a group from Japan, actually, decided to look more carefully at these ruts and at the scraping marks in the street and to try and work out something from the ruts about the whole traffic plan of the city. Because there's one obvious problem that anybody who walks around Pompeii discovers, which is that um, most of the streets, not all of them, most of them are very narrow. So how on earth um, did two carts pass? Now, by carefully looking at some of these ruts uh, and looking at the scraping of the cart marks as they went round the corners, um, there's been uh, the beginning uh, of an understanding of 
actually which way carts did go down the street. And uh, now some people, perhaps over-optimistically, I think, have uh, you know, pretty well identified what they say is the one-way street system of the town. Yeah. But there are other things. Come on, I'll tell you a few other things, which are, which are in a sense actually new discoveries. And one of the most interesting houses, which is not yet open to the public, though it hoped as it will be in due course, uh, is a, a house that was excavated 15 years ago. And that, in this house, quite a large house, or the glamorous house with nice garden, etc., one of the things that was discovered in that was a room, a big, perhaps, dining room, where the painters had been redecorating it. The painters had been redecorating it just at the moment that the eruption came. And it looks as if they just scarper. They just, <laughs> there must be one rumble too many. And they got right, we're off. And they, they left behind them just what they'd been working with, their ladders and their, and their planks and their scaffolding and their paintbrushes and their buckets of plaster. And you can see from all this and from the unfinished state of the room you can start to see how a team of Pompeian interior decorators actually worked on those paintings that are now uh, so impressive when you visit the site and you see them in their finished form. And you can see how they did drawings on the plaster underneath before they quickly put, put on the finished paint because they're working in fresco technique, which is on wet plaster. So they have in the end, they do everything terribly quickly. And you can see the line drawings and their undercoating. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating for saying, right, how were these paintings that are oh, they're gorgeous paintings, some of the Pompeian things, how were they actually produced? It looks as if this one was done with a team of you know, perhaps three or four guys um, working very quickly. Sadly, didn't finish in this case. So if um, anyone listening has been tempted to pay a visit to Pompeii, what would you suggest that they really shouldn't miss? Kind of a bit of a cop-out, but I think the first thing I'd say is forget going to a monument at all, the first thing. The thing that's really impressive about Pompeii, even now and even when bits of it are closed off, is... You walk down the street, you cross the stepping stones from one pavement to another, you dodge the cart ruts where you might twist your ankle, and you can feel yourself back in 79 AD. So what I would say to someone to do first is get a sense, you know, do the romantic bit, you know, walk along, follow, follow the stream of other visitors, because there's millions of visitors a year. But you, you know, as soon as you see a street with nobody in it, dive down it and just enjoy it. <laughs> I think that's the most impressive thing about the city is simply the ambiance. You know, you do feel as if you're back in the ancient world and you can find streets, even in July and August, you can still find streets where you're the only person. Then I'd visit the brothel. I mean, it's cheesy and all the rest, but uh, the Pompeian brothel has been recently restored and done up. It's, uh, I'm afraid, a tourist hotspot, but it's sort of worth it. You know, you, you can go into this building, which was the sex industry of ancient Pompeii. You can see the erotic paintings kind of advertising the wares above the doors of the little cubicles. You can see the little cubicles where the girls, we think it was girls, are uh, operated. You can see the loo in the back. <laughs> um, and you are walking through a Pompeian brothel. And... I think that's 
that brings all kinds of uh, different and ambivalent uh, reflections, I think. But it is very impressive, even if you are there with hundreds of other people, which I'm afraid you will be. In the magazine this month, you've written an A to Z of Pompeii. And I'd just like to pick up on a, a couple of, of points you've made there. Your D is diet and, in brackets, dormice. So d- did the Romans actually really eat dormice? Well, uh, the bad view is that not half as often as we imagine. Um, but working on Pompeii has meant that I've got to I've got to admit that occasionally dormice were consumed. That's because there's a handful of small objects, very odd objects, which are kind of pots with an internal runways in them, in, be, embedded into the door, into the into the wall of the pot. So you've got like a round jar um, with uh, little sort of runs running up the inside. It's very difficult to describe. What is absolutely amazing about these is that if you looked at them, you wouldn't have the foggiest clue what they were for. Uh, you can then go to ancient writing about different sorts of animals and how they're kept and they match up absolutely to something called a glirarium which is a dormouse cage where dormice could be kept conveniently in the home to fatten them up before you decided to put them on the table so uh, unless there's something that I haven't thought about which is which would be another explanation for what these funny jars are. I have to admit, uh, slightly reluctantly, that the Pompeians did occasionally nibble a tasty dormouse. Right, it does sound like a, a, a curious bit of tableware. It is a curious bit of tableware indeed. And <laughs> your your L in a, in our A to Z is L for lavatories. So so go on, tell us what we know about Pompeian oh, toilet habits. Well, don't get too excited about the fantastic. Um, uh, plumbing of the ancient world when it comes to Pompeii. They do have running water, um, but the ancients uh, are much more keen on having running water to run their fountains in their gardens than to flush their loos with. Um, So mostly what you've got, most houses have got lavatories, but they're not flush jobs, though some of them are. Mostly, they are holes running into a cesspit, uh, flush, no doubt, with a bucket of water thrown down them, and they are mostly in the kitchen. Um, this is because I imagine that they served as lavatory plus waste disposal unit for the peelings, and everything was flushed down into the cesspit underneath. And uh, it's a bit, I think it takes you back a bit to think, you know, one thing that we know, every blasted regulation for buildings tell us you have to have you know, X number of doors between a lavatory and a food preparation order uh, area. Go back to Pompeii and you find the loos in the kitchen. But uh, they do at least uh, give you some opportunity, as I they give you some opportunity of analysing the residue and finding out just what came out of Pompeian intestines and where you can excavate the cesspits underneath, which is another um, uh, nice innovation of modern archaeology. You can get quite a good idea of what was, what was going through the bowels of Pompeian. Thanks, Mary. And you can, of course, read uh, the, the full A to Z in, uh, in the current issue of the magazine. Mary Beard's Pompeii is on sale now. 
but let's go to Rob to hear his rundown of the three things that history lovers should do this month. Okay, well, to start off with, a great event that happens every September is Heritage Open Days. That takes place this year from the 11th to the 14th of September. And what usually happens is that thousands of properties all over England open their doors to the public for free. Some of these places aren't normally accessible, others normally charge for entry, and there's also special events going on. Now, although this is only taking place in England, there are similar programmes elsewhere in the UK as part of European Heritage Days. OK, good. Number two? Well, number two, our exhibition of the month this month is about the First World War. As many listeners may know, it's the 90th anniversary of the end of the First World War coming up in November. There's going to be a lot of things taking place to mark that, but the Imperial War Museum is starting early with an exhibition called In Memoriam, This tells the story of the war through the personal experiences of a variety of people who are actually involved in the conflict. The exhibition opens on the 30th of September, and it's a very important one for the museum because the museum itself was founded due to the war in 1917. And we're actually also doing a First World War special issue in November, which is something else to look out for. Yes, it is. And indeed, I've just interviewed Michael Palin for that because he's presenting a Time Watch programme all about the last day of the First World War. That will be in our November podcast. But for the third thing... Well, if the weather continues as it has done recently, you might well be looking for something good to watch on the box. And our pick for this month is a programme called Arena, The Hunt for Moby Dick, which at the moment is looking like it's going on on the 20th of September, but it's always worth checking your listing guides. Now, this programme examines the 19th century whaling industry, which inspired Melville's classic novel, and it has a lot of contemporary relevance as well with all the modern debates about whaling. And as always, you can read more about all of these things in the magazine. Thank you, Rob. Three good choices for things for history enthusiasts to do this month. Uh, Now, Rob has also been talking to Professor David Lodes about his preferred destination for a trip in the BBC History magazine, Time Machine. So let's hear what year he would most like to visit if he could be transported back in time. Why have you chosen 1558? Well, it's the uh, turning point of the English Reformation, really. It's the year of Mary's death and Elizabeth's accession. Mary dies on the 17th of November, 1558. Elizabeth succeeds. That is the, uh, as it turns out, the end of the uh, attempt to restore and maintain the Catholic religion in England. Would people at the time have realised that? Yes, I think so, pretty quickly after the event, because there's been this very high-profile uh, persecution has been going on, which had maintained right up to Mary's death. And as soon as Mary dies, the persecution stops. Everybody who knew anything about the situation was quite well aware that Elizabeth had conformed to the Catholic faith very reluctantly under pressure and that she was now going to do something different. It wasn't quite known what she would do, but it would certainly be different from what had been there before. When you're back in 1558, who would you like to speak to? Oh, Elizabeth, I think, or William Cecil, possibly. Get more out of William Cecil, I think, probably. What would you ask him? What he thought uh, the immediate future held and what his relationship with Elizabeth was really like. What do you think he'd say? Well, he would be very discreet and he would say she is a noble and a gracious dame and uh, basically I I respect her intellect and uh, I will do what she bids me to do, which would be a coded way of saying she will take my advice if she knows what's good for her. Right, and did she take his advice in the end? 
On most issues, yes. Uh, not always. He was opposed to the intervention in France in 1562. She didn't take his advice on that. But I think she certainly took his advice over the religious settlement, which was just coming up, of course, as settled in the early part of 1559. I mean, they saw very closely eye to eye. They'd both been Nicodemites under Mary. They'd both conformed rather reluctantly, or very reluctantly indeed, but they had conformed, and they were not, therefore, of the extreme godly party which was looking to take over power in 1558. They played quite an important role at this point in steering Britain's religious future. Oh, certainly it's very important, uh, really, well, throughout his political life from then on until his death in 1598 but um, he's particularly important at the beginning because there is so much to be decided I mean the other thing where he was very clearly extremely influential was over the intervention in Scotland in 1560 which was very largely his doing he's pushing the Queen to make decisions because she's hesitating all the time saying I don't want to get involved and he's saying you must get involved this is your opportunity to settle the situation in Scotland in England's favour and so it turned out, of course, he was quite right about that. Do you think in 1558 Elizabeth was already planning the restoration of Protestantism? Oh yes, I think so, undoubtedly. I think this was her great opportunity. Elizabeth had a very strong sense of having a hotline to God and she knew perfectly well what he wanted her to do and what he wanted her to do was to restore the true godly religion, which was Protestantism. Did she make that explicit at the time? Well, Elizabeth never made anything very explicit. I mean, her gestures were pretty explicit. First thing she does is to, is to say, well, just carry on as usual, but stop the persecution. That isn't a recorded order, but it, it happened nonetheless. But then, of course, uh, during a service in the Chapel Royal at the very beginning of 1559, when Owen Oglethorpe was celebrating Mass, which was still being celebrated at that point, she walks out before the elevation of their host, which was a very, very clear indication that she didn't approve of the Mass. Uh, and then the Mass, which is celebrated at her coronation, she takes communion secretly in both kinds behind a screen. And um, there again, that was not strictly lawful at the time, but it's fairly clear that that was what she intended to do. Are there any historical debates you'd like to settle if you were in 1558? Well, yes, I think the first interesting question that I would want answered uh, is who drafted those statutes in 1559 and where the ideas, we know who drafted them, but where the ideas actually came from, to what extent Cecil was influencing them, whether the ideas came mainly from the Queen herself. As I say, we know who drafted the statutes, but what we don't know is the discussions that went on behind them. So that is one. Um, the other question I would like to ask is um, uh, the question of the ending of the war between France and Spain. We know about the English commissioners who were sent out to take part in the negotiations at Cato Combrasi, but how serious was Elizabeth really in trying to retain Calais? Um, she swore she'd cut the heads off her commissioners if they came back and they surrendered Calais. But of course they did, and she accepted it. <laughs> So whether it was just bravado? Well, I think it was just, yeah, I mean, it was just Elizabeth throwing a tantrum, which she was very well qualified to do. I mean, she, she was an excellent actress, was Elizabeth, and you can never really tell in all the recorded incidents whether she's playing up or being genuinely annoyed. Was the arrival of Elizabeth to the throne one of the most sort of defining moments of British history? 
Yes, I think it was, um, because uh, although if Henry VIII hadn't established the royal supremacy, there wouldn't have been any precedent for what happened in 1559. At the same time, if Mary had had a child who'd succeeded and the Catholic Church had gone on, the whole subsequent history of England would have been completely different. Do you think the image we have of Elizabeth these days, especially with all those films and TV programmes, how accurate is it the image the public have of her? Well, I think one can forget the films and TV programmes. I mean, they, they're out to entertain and not to inform very largely. I think if you look at the recent biographies of Elizabeth McCaffrey's mind, David Starkey's and so on, you'll find a pretty accurate representation of what we now think the Queen was like, which is all one can say, really. Um, you can't get any closer than what the evidence allows. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, so I'm now going to drag us kicking and screaming back from 1558 up to the present day, 2008, uh, to explore what new history books are on sale with uh, the deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. So, Sue, tell us, what book should we be looking out for this month? Okay, we looked at 12 books in the September issue, and this is my pick of three of them. Um, First up is A Daughter's Love, written by John Guy. This is a book on Thomas More's daughter, who played an important role in the martyrs' troubled last months. When the Lord Chancellor was languishing in the Tower of London, under suspicion of treason for refusing to acknowledge the legitimacy of Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn, or to accept Henry's claim to be head of the English Church, Margaret did more than anyone else to buoy up More's flagging spirits. Why would I read it? Well, it's good because Guy rescues Margaret from relative obscurity and shows her to be a woman of mighty intellect and deep compassion, who, um, furthermore, secured her father's posthumous reputation by preserving all the letters that she exchanged with him. Guy supplied a wealth of intimate, fascinating details, one of the most compelling stories in Tudor history. And in this book, he has brought the fruit of many years' research on Thomas More to a wider reading public. John Guy has a happy knack of being able to bring history alive. What about your second choice? 
yes, second choice is uh, very different. Dunkirk, The Men They Left Behind by Sean Longdon. This is a book on Dunkirk, the heroic evacuation of the British Army from France that snatched salvation from defeat in 1940. But there is a twist, because although some 300,000 British and French troops escaped the Nazis to fight another day, when the last boat left the Dunkirk quayside in the darkness, there were some 68,000 British soldiers left behind. And here Sean tells their harrowing story. And how would you persuade me to pick up this particular title? Well, it's good because he has talked with dozens of survivors and writes with great passion about their fate uh, he saves for posterity for posterity the experiences of men whose suffering has too readily been forgotten um, this book also debunks the rather rosy picture of pow life that emerged in the post-war years okay your final choice okay europe between the oceans 9000 bc to ad 1000 by barry cunliffe this is a book on 10,000 years of European history, from the Mesolithic to the point when the nation-states, which now constitute Europe, were starting to take shape. It tells how Europe rose from being on the far periphery of the development of agricultural and urbanisation to the eve of Western Europe's imperial ambitions to dominate the rest of the world. OK, well, I love my archaeology, so this won't take much, but Sue, sell it to me. Well, OK, it's good because it's uh, not only by the former professor of European archaeology at the University of Oxford, so he really knows his stuff, but it's also a good read and it's got stunning photos of sites and objects and is also reasonably priced. Excellent. Well, there we are. That's free books to keep an eye out for this month. Uh, now, Sue has been in conversation with another of our feature writers this month, uh, who is uh, none other than Professor John Morrill. Uh, John uh, has contributed to our special issue, uh, which commemorates the 350th anniversary of the death of Oliver Cromwell. And he's been explaining how the stock of Cromwell's reputation has risen and fallen over the last three and a half centuries. Today I'd like to welcome John Morrill, Professor of British and Irish History at the University of Cambridge and author of an authoritative biography on Oliver Cromwell. So John, um, Cromwell is obviously a hugely important figure in British history, but 350 years after his death in 1658, he remains also a controversial figure, doesn't he? He does indeed, yeah. Um, it's partly that, that he, his actions uh, both uh, are easily to be admired, his commitment to religious freedom and so on, but also to be worried about, like the extreme violence he used uh, in the Congress of Ireland and Scotland. And so, you know, it's obviously how one you know, weighs it against one another and also how one weighs both sincerity and the ferocity of his religious faith. These are, these are complicated things uh, at, all, at all periods. Indeed. And what would we call his main achievements? <laughs> well, you could, <laughs> you could say his main achievement w was the execution of the king. Um, achievement, of course, there is very ambiguous. But, I mean, the, the, the recognition that this king who'd lost the civil war was plunging the country into anarchy because of his refusal to accept you know, the logic of his defeat, to have the sort of nerve to put a king on trial and execute him again uh, is, um, is controversial, but certainly um, admirable in terms of, uh, of the way it was done. Um, and I suppose, uh, again, very controversially, the, um, the most complete ever, you know, British, uh, English rather, English conquest uh, of both Ireland and Scotland. I mean, kings have been trying to do it for centuries and had failed, and he, he managed it. On the... On the, on the um, uh, on the much more positive side, he 
it was instrumental in achieving a much greater degree of religious freedom than had ever existed before or was to exist again really until the very end of the 19th century so he not only gave people freedom to worship but he said you know whether or not you're part of the state church you have equal rights to hold office to go to university to become uh, join the professions and these sorts of, of um, equal rights um, as well as liberties for people of a variety of religious views are way ahead of his time indeed so these are these are things that we value today um, and if I was to ask uh, for what we might he might be reviled um, I guess you'd go back to the beginning of your last answer um, yeah. about uh, <laughs> killing the king, king and so forth well of course you know the the, the uh, I mean from the monarchy's point of view it did come back and did come back at chastened and a bit wiser um, I mean my, you know, the, the great predecessor Christopher Hill you know once said that um, the kings never forgot again that they had a joint in their neck you know that in a sense he he was arguing that those who rule are accountable to those um, you know who are there who are their sub- subjects or citizens and that sense that in the end those who exercise power are accountable um, although he did it in a dramatic way, is a lesson that was learnt. Um, so even that could be seen as some kind of positive. Um, on the other hand, um, it's very difficult to see his, um, his, you know, what he did in Ireland as anything other than uh, leaving a very, very long legacy, not simply in the massacres that took place, um, albeit massacres which were avenging massacres by Catholics or Protestants, a cycle of violence into which he entered, but nonetheless entered very brutally. But the the massive uh, expropriation of land, um, about 40% of the land mass of Ireland was confiscated from Catholics born in Ireland and given to Protestants born in Britain. So this is a very, very um, troubled legacy, which you know has, has um, hopefully in the last few years begun to be resolved, but has has caused endless um, you know, misery for for many, many people uh, over the last few hundred fifty years. Yes, and um, readers can find out more about um, the massacre of soldiers and civilians um, at Drogheda in 1649 um, in our current issue, uh, where we have a feature by Michael Osiakru. Um So let's go back a moment to the execution of Charles I. Um, of course, he was not only the king, but he believed that he ruled by divine right. Um, so obviously there was a whole religious aspect to this. Well, I, the whole point, I think, is that... Um uh, there had been a um, there had been trial by battle between two views of um, Britain's destiny, um, and both sides appealed to God um, as the judge. And God had uh, decisively come down the parliamentarian side for the ki- so for the king to refuse to accept defeat, for him to plot um, and conspire to overturn that victory and to begin a second civil war, wasn't only as it were politically um, uh, frustrating. It was also in a sense an attempt to overturn the judgment of God. It was a kind of blasphemy or sacrilege. And Cromwell became convinced that... um that, that God uh, would not was so impatient with a king who had shed the innocent blood of his own subjects that he deserved to die, and so there was a very strong religious motive. Uh, the one thing I would want to make clear is that Charles the uh, sorry the big button. The one thing I would want to make clear is that Cromwell wished to abolish Charles the first. He didn't wish to abolish monarchy. 
and right. uh, we should never see the regicide as being inevitably leading to um, uh, a republic. From Cromwell's point of view, various forms of government were equally good so long as they were answerable to you know, God's plan uh, to produce liberty, uh, both civil mm. and religious liberty. Mm. And um, he was always looking for the option of restoring some form of monarchy, either in a more chastened House of Stuart or if, in, possibly uh, in a House of Cromwell. Right. So, in a sense, both sides felt that they, they had God on their side um, yeah. at this yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, yes. the key, I mean, both sides uh, demonised the other. Um, I mean, in a literal sense, both sides believed that um, the other was uh, both was destroying order um, and creating anarchy and creating religious chaos um in parliament thought the king was was uh, bringing back um the old um tyrannical forms of, of catholicism by the back door um the king thought that the puritans were were unleashing um forces of uh, religious fanaticism which were linked to to, a, to anarchy yeah yeah so um the with Cromwell's own contemporaries, um, the, the people on his side, what did they think of him? Because they must have seen the, the you know, having to put the king to death as the, as the very last resort. Yeah. Cromwell, um, Cromwell although he um, came from quite a, um, a wealthy family, was part of a junior branch of it. So he himself was possibly the poorest man in the House of Commons in 1640. So his social superiors thought he was a bit of a, an upstart. Um, and his um, absolute determination to win an outright victory, to impose a settlement on the king, really upset a lot of more cautious people on the parliamentarian side who always looked for a negotiated settlement and didn't want to humiliate the king. They thought humiliating the king would only you know, cause more trouble than it was worth in the long run. Mm. Um, and so Cromwell was very suspected by a lot of both social and more religious conservatives than himself. On the other hand, he had the fanatical support of all who served with him. I mean, he had this extraordinary ability to lead in battle and to make those who served on him believe in that that both in the cause they were fighting for and in his, you know, uh, his personal favour with God. Mm. And he never really lost the support of the vast majority of people who served under him. Um, And in Parliament, well, he was simply someone who was so ruthless in in saying all this suffering, all this um, all this death and desolation which the war has caused, um, we cannot then make um, a settlement that is dishonourable to those who have suffered. So he is he is a very hard line, uh, a very hard line negotiator for um, a settlement which the king finds unex- you know, he won't accept, even though you know he is um, in prison. Um, um, and a defeated man. He simply thinks, yes. in the end, in the end, they will um, they will reach a compromise with him. And yes. of course, uh, he misjudges. Yes, indeed. And uh, so, John, the feature you've, ri- you've written for us in the magazine this month takes a look at just how Cromwell's reputation has ebbed and flowed in the past three centuries. Um, and readers can find out more about that um, by taking a look at the magazine. Um, so, back to the present. What do historians today think about Cromwell? On the whole, he's had a very good press in the last 50 years or so. Uh, He went through a bad patch in the 1930s when 
when his rise to um, as absolute power made him look a bit too like um, the great totalitarians. And a, a couple of very influential biographies were written uh, likening him to Hitler. Um, this phase passed pretty quickly, and since World War II, there have been, um, I don't know, 20 or 30 biographies which are very favourable. Uh, a very influential one by Christopher Hill saw him as someone who both made and then betrayed a revolution, someone who was the great uh, sort of hero of popular liberty in the 1640s, who you know, failed to live up to his, um, his own um, uh, high, high promises of liberty in the 1650s. But the rest of the biographies have, have more or less taken him at his word. He is a very powerful, he, he wrote over 400 letters that we still have, and he made more than 30 speeches, which were written down pretty much as he gave them in, in shorthands that were being developed at the time, um, and were all efficient shorthands. So we do have a pretty good sense uh, of his words, and he gives a passionate account of himself as someone who is freeing people from tyranny, the tyranny of kings, the tyranny of bishops, and the notion of a, of a state church which everybody had to belong. Someone who believed in freedom, um, believed in responsibility, um, so he believed the rich had all kinds of duties to the poor which the state had to enforce, um, and he believed in, in, in uh, govern, govern, governors who were accountable to their people. So, And on the whole, historians think that this is a sincere program um, and they don't believe uh, the testimony of a lot of his contemporaries who thought he was a canting hypocrite, you know, always striving for uh, for personal power and using mm -hmm. a rhetoric of liberty in order to achieve it. Um, when I go around talking to sixth formers, I find them much more sceptical about that. They're, they're hardened to not believing politicians' words. Yes. <laughs> um, but, the, but the very experienced historians who've actually been through the records very carefully have got pretty close to a consensus um, of rather admiring him but being slightly kind of apprehensive about the, the ferocity of his religious belief and with the rise of, of religious fundamentalism um, or shall we say religious fundamentalisms in the last few years yes. just a note of caution is beginning to creep in and I rather expect that, um, that religious fanaticism of his kind might be seen much less favorably in the next you know, few years and we may begin to get some more hostile biographies. John Morrill, thank you very much. Okay, and that was John Morrill talking about Cromwell's reputation. Also in the current issue is Michael Osea crew looking at the massacre of Drogheda. Now, don't forget, you can get a copy of Michael Osiakru's book, God's Executioner, free when you subscribe to BBC History magazine this month. Just call 0844-844-0250 and quote POD0908 to take up the offer. Hurry, because this is a limited offer and closes at the end of September. Or you can go to www.com subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine and again quote pod 0908 
Okay, that is it for this month. If you want more history, I would encourage you to go and buy the magazine, or if not, why not go and visit our website, www.bbchistorymagazine.com, to read our brand new blogs, sign up for our weekly history on TV e newsletter,、uh, or to chat on the forum. And do look out for next month's podcast when Professor Richard Evans will be giving us a five minute lecture on how far the German people supported Hitler's Third Reich. And I'll be talking to Hannah Gregg about her experiences as historical adviser to the new drama The Duchess, starring Kira Knightley. Do join us next month, it'll be brilliant.